This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We have a couple of especially great guests for you today. Dr. Bruce Betts, the Planetary Society, will be rejoining us to update the situation on the planet Mars. We're very excited about the fact that the Spirit and Opportunity rovers are running around the surface of the Red Planet. And we're going to talk to Dr. Betts about this development in our third segment today. We delve into politics quite a bit on this program, as you uh, hopefully well know. And in our second segment, we're going to analyze what happened to Howard Dean and what's going to happen in this upcoming 2004 election by talking to Lisa Pease. Lisa Pease, along with Jim Eugenio, was editor of Probe magazine, which for many years did some fine investigative journalism into the American political scene. Uh, Lisa, uh, well, she's, I'll let her tell the story in our second segment today, but she uh, has some interesting insights as to what happened to Howard Dean. And yes, uh, Howard Dean looks like yesterday's news at this point, but uh, what happened to the Dean campaign is relevant, I think, to what may happen to the Kerry campaign if John Kerry doesn't keep his wits about him. This promises to be a a fascinating discussion in our second segment, so please stay tuned for that. In the meantime, segment one today, let's uh, let's do a roundup of some uh, miscellaneous items. And I would like to point out we have an embarrassment of riches for today's program. We interviewed Charles Lewis of the Center for Public Integrity earlier this week, but we didn't have time to stick him in today's program, so we will hold that taped interview for next week's show. Charles Lewis is the primary author of The Buying of the President 2004, who is really bankrolling Bush and his Democratic challengers. It is currently on the New York Times bestseller list for good reason, and we look forward to bringing you Charles Lewis on next week's program. All right, statistic that I thought was curious. I noticed last month, February 13th issue of The Week magazine citing the Wall Street Journal. From 1871 to the present, 16,002 men have played Major League Baseball, which is really an amazing statistic. This country has something like half a million lawyers, half a million doctors. These are professions that, you know, not everyone can get in. It's hard, it's restricted, and yet, Half a million people are able to make the grade on both counts. And yet, it's so difficult to play Major League Baseball that from 1871 until until the present, only 16,000 people have ever been able to make the grade. I think that's amazing. I have some hope uh, that in a program here, probably in April, we may be able to bring on a Hall of Fame baseball player to be named later uh, to tell us a little bit about... um, what it's like to play Major League Baseball, something that I think just about every, uh, every kid aspires to at about age 11. And uh, as it turns out, only 16,000 people have ever been able to do. And a baseball trivia stat that I think we have to ask, maybe A.G. Block, who was on our show uh, last year, was quite a baseball expert. How many people have played a full season? How many people have ever lasted through one full season of Major League Baseball? I'm sure it's a lot less than 16,000 because you know a lot of those guys probably came up, played 10 games, went back to the minors, and never came up again. And uh, speaking of baseball, Pete Rose has some good news and some bad news. Uh, Recently, Paul Molitor and Dennis Eckersley were admitted to Cooperstown, which is quite an honor. 
I don't know how many people are in Cooperstown, but of course, it's a tiny percentage of that, that 16,000 we were talking about just a minute ago. I always find it amazing that, uh, that there always is a controversy over someone who was a, a good player, a very good player, but, but various writers argue about, well, was he quite good enough to make the Hall of Fame? Pete Rose, of course, uh, is in a lot of hot water because he gambled. He gambled on his own team. His autobiography finally admitted this a few months back. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. He said, I, I bet on my own team, but I never bet against them. So now that I've admitted it after denying it all these years and I've come clean, would you please just admit me to baseball's Hall of Fame? The good news for Pete Rose is that he has been inducted into the Hall of Fame. The bad news is he's been inducted into the World Wrestling Entertainment Hall of Fame. So yes, although Pete Rose will not be joining Paul Molitor and Dennis Eckersley or more recent inductees such as Gary Carter and Eddie Murray, but this last weekend he joined former Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura, Bobby the Brain Heenan, Sergeant Slaughter, Tito Santana, the Junkyard Dog, and of course, Big John Studd in World Wrestling Entertainment's Hall of Fame. You have to feel a little bit for Pete Rose. He would like very much to join Ty Cobb, the man whose all-time hit record he finally eclipsed through his... uh, through his zealous and aggressive and rather overbearing play all those years. He will not be joining Honus Wagner, Babe Ruth, Christy Mathewson, and Walter Johnson in the Hall of Fame, but he may be able to gain some consolation in knowing that he will now proudly stand alongside some WWE superstars as Andre the Giant, George the Animal Steel, Gorilla Monsoon, Pat Patterson, Captain Lou Albano, and Walter Killer Kowalski. Congratulations to Pete Rose on that. Just because you compromised every single value that uh, you might want to place on the art of sports play, you can still get ahead. Of course, we look forward to hearing more about the Pete Rose story in the future. And and I'm sure there will be more about the Pete Rose story. I'd, I'd bet on that. Hey, did you notice in the Sacramento News and Review, March 4th edition, uh, on the last page, 15 minutes, they do a section usually every every uh, edition of someone locally that's making the news in some way. They call it your 15 minutes of fame, where the 15 minutes in the title comes from. Uh, article about uh, KDVS's own Sakura Sanders, radio host right here on this program and producer for the Nationwide Sprouts Radio Project. We talked to Sakura about... Uh, the documentary she was presenting over at 194 Chemistry on the UCD campus. The revolution will not be televised, and uh, I guess they maybe heard the interview. I believe they heard the interview that we did here and wanted to ask her a few more questions, and so there she is in the paper. And, uh, and uh, we wish the paper well, and we wish Sakura well. Newsweek Magazine, February 2nd, 2004. Another article uh, written by a student. In this case, Berkeley's Michelle Myers, special correspondent for Newsweek, writing an article about the political situation at UC Berkeley, which I found rather stunning. A poll published in conjunction with the article states that at UC Berkeley, 54% of the people there approve of the George W. Bush presidency, 60% support the war in Iraq, but 56% believe that people under 30 disproportionately bear the burden of U.S. policy on Iraq. Let me quote from the article here because I think it bears quoting. 
Older Americans may have a hard time understanding how someone like Carrie could be so anonymous on the Berkeley campus today. To them, both the school and the senator, a war hero turned war protester, bring to mind the volatile Vietnam era and the tradition of political activism it spawned. When some older professors here, older professors, when some older professors here make grand predictions about Kerry's political chances, it's clear they're influenced by nostalgia for a protester past, the candidates and their own. But Vietnam doesn't stir up the same emotions in today's Berkeley students as it did for their parents and professors four decades ago. Vietnam was the 60s. War for my generation means Iraq. Last spring, campus anti-war activists failed to organize mass demonstrations against the Bush administration's invasion of Iraq. It was a far cry from the Berkeley of old, where thousands of students caught the nation's attention asking for love, not war. Well, I would chalk some of this up to the media coverage, the way they've successfully been able to manipulate the images coming out of Iraq, the Pentagon, the State Department, the Bush administration invested a tremendous amount of energy in making sure that negative imagery did not uh, come back to the United States because in their mind, the images that came back from Vietnam turned the public against the war. Well... (sighs) The public was against the war by about 1968. Lyndon Johnson had to withdraw from an effort to get himself reelected because it was clear the war was so unpopular he didn't have a shot at it. But this idea that mainstream media coverage was anti-war is just flat out not true. It was not true back then and it's still not true now. Michael Rupert should be joining this program a few weeks from now, and uh, Michael Rupert believes that there's an effort afoot to bring back the draft. I wonder if that will galvanize student opinion across this country, and if they bring back the draft, there will be no student deferments like there were in the late 60s. Uh, I wonder how that will change students' minds about what is currently going on in our rather aggressive pursuit of foreign policy using the military to achieve what uh, perhaps might be better achieved through political means. When we have Mr. Rupert on, we will certainly delve into that issue. Now, Radio Parallax has a stated editorial policy of opposing religious fundamentalist fanatics. We don't care for them if they're wearing turbans and are trying to incite terrorist actions against the U.S., or whether they have the ear of the president and are influencing domestic policy. Let us address the second issue briefly, shall we? The religious right believes that uh, people should not be having sex unless they're married. And uh, since this seems to continue to be a popular activity in the United States, they've launched a war to do what they can to stop it. One front in this battle is the fact the Bush administration is now pushing for warning labels on condoms. Condoms, if this goes through, will now contain a warning that states that they do not safeguard against human papillomavirus, which is a rather little-known but widespread sexually transmitted disease that, if untreated, can cause genital warts or, in some cases, cervical cancer. It's also been implicated in now in oral cancers because of the connection to oral sex. Right-wing Christian evangelical fundamentalists pushing their agenda now have the FDA considering a regulatory plan 
to put these labels on condoms, which is which is basically an effort to shift people away from using condoms and having sex into abstinence. Now, condoms, like anything else in the universe, are not perfect. Uh, they do a, a very good job in preventing pregnancy when properly used, and they do a very good job in minimizing the risks of contracting diseases such as AIDS, a fatal disease, Chlamydia and gonorrhea, the two most common types of um, sexually transmitted disease in the country. Syphilis, herpes, hepatitis B, trichomonas, human papillomavirus, etc. Well, if you look at the numbers, HPV, human papillomavirus, is probably considered to be the number one sexually transmitted disease. But it doesn't cause any grave, terrible, life-threatening condition except the annoyance of warts for the most part so that it doesn't get the attention others do. But uh, people like Representative Joanne Davis, Republican of Virginia, are saying that, oh yeah, this is a great idea. Quote, this is not about social ideology or religious ideology. It's about informing women. And truly, the only way to be protected is abstinence. That's not ideology. It's fact. Okay, so Representative Joanne Davis, Republican of Virginia, is siding with this fundamentalist viewpoint that, oh yes, condoms, you know, you can't really protect yourself with condoms. If you want to protect yourself, the only way to be sure is abstinence. Hello? While in theory that may be true, that isn't of great practical value for people. And putting warnings on condoms saying you're not going to get protection from certain viruses that's, that's completely effective is a way of saying, don't bother. And if you don't bother to use your condoms, that's going to mean more pregnancies. It's going to push things toward more pregnancies and more sexually transmitted disease, including HIV. This is, this is unbelievable. In fact, two weeks ago, public health advocates rallied in Philadelphia against President Bush's plan to expand abstinence-only education. They called instead for teaching youngsters about condoms and prevention of sexually transmitted diseases. This, however, is not the direction the Bush administration wants to go. In his State of the Union address in January, Bush said abstinence is the only way to avoid, the only certain way to avoid sexually transmitted disease and proposed doubling the funding to $270 million for abstinence programs. The problem is... Public health study after public health study shows that abstinence programs have been ineffective. It was pointed out by Julie Davids, executive director of CHAMP, a New York-based HIV-AIDS organization. People like Representative Souter are taking the small piece of the puzzle and running with it, saying condoms don't work, instead of saying condoms are really good at preventing HIV and other diseases. And in similar horrible news... From the Bush administration, the emergency contraceptive known as Plan B, judged safe through years of prescription use and effective in preventing pregnancy 89% of the time when taken within 72 hours of unprotected sex, has been derailed. In December, a Food and Drug Administration joint advisory panel charged with weighing the benefits and health risks of Plan B voted 23 to 4 in favor of allowing women to buy the drug without a prescription. Normally, this determination would suggest nearly automatic FDA approval. Then politics intruded. There's been a concerted campaign against this drug. Now, by the way, what this basically amounts to is a couple of birth control pills and a couple of birth control pills 12 hours later. You can basically, it's been known for you know decades that this is an effective 
morning after birth control regimen. You should talk to your doctor about this, of course, Planned Parenthood, etc. But that's what we're talking about here. It's been shown for years. This is safe. This is effective. But 49 conservative members of Congress urged Bush and FDA Commissioner Mark McCullen to reject the FDA panel's recommendation. The January 9th letter drafted by Representative Dave Weldon, Republican Florida, focused on fears that the availability of emergency contraception would prompt teenage girls to become more sexually active, endangering their health. That, of course, is the conservative position. Sex education and condoms promote irresponsible, premature sexual activity among young people. There was a brilliant cartoon a few months ago that said, if conservatives had their way in teaching driver's ed, and it shows a class of students, and on the blackboard it said, driving is dangerous. The best thing to do is to not drive. And it's got a car with a circle slash through it. All these warnings, you know, driving is dangerous to your health. Whatever you do, don't do it. Well, I think that's a pretty good parallel. We'll be returning to this uh, unfortunate issue, and I think we'll go to our friends over at Planned Parenthood to see if they can't uh, explain what's at stake. The good guys are fighting back on this, but in an election year, Bush is going to dig his heels in, play to his constituency in the South, and uh, you know, don't expect Plan B to go forward anytime soon, although it makes sense on every level. And when we talk about that, we're going to talk about the federal appeals court agreeing to hear a request from Jane Roe to see if she can't get Roe versus Wade overturned. Norma McCorvey, known at that time as Jane Roe, 1973, has now switched sides to become an anti-abortion activist. And there is, of course, naturally more political skullduggery involved in this. We will return to that. But we're out of time right now in our first segment, so let us take a short break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and this is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. (laughs) 